so, so money raised all of our wonderful timelines that you probably just got confused by anyways, but if I need to write something down, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I'm not going to have time to get through everything and look at the details of the timeline, so if you need me to uh, put something up there for the sake of answering a question, I'll, I'll just have to recreate it. Let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, this time to once again reflect on an important passage of scripture, but one that's often debated and um, confused in the minds of your people. So we pray that you would give us clarity of thought, help us to understand um, its relation to the end times and eschatology, and to really apply it to our lives in a way that um, just helps us to honor you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we had a, a um, the, hopefully you saw as, the, as we progressed in the timelines from a very simple outline, a very simple timeline of amillennialism to kind of a progressively more difficult to understand timeline where we looked at um, dispensational premillennialism as, as creating the greatest um, number of items to look at. The n- it multiplies the number of returns to make sense of the, the passage. Um, but what I want to do is just critique that, esca- that view, dispensational premillennialism, hopefully with about half the time, and then spend the other half revisiting Revelation 20. So I'm not going to spend time looking at all these verses, but I'm just going to kind of lay it out there and try to do it in, a, in, in a, about eight points, okay, the critique. So first of all, the second coming, as dispensationalists see it, they see it in two different settings, two different stages, right? They wouldn't say the rapture is the second coming, and yet, everything you read about the rapture is associated with the second coming, right? In Scripture, you have uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, um, 1 Corinthians. So the coming is always associated with the passage that's describing the rapture, which is being, you know, those who are caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. That's, that's literally the word rapture. You know, that's where the word rapture comes from. So that's associated with Christ's return. You have um, Christ defeating the Antichrist is associated with that same language. The word in Greek is parousia, which, it, which is translated his coming. Okay, so his coming is associated with the rapture, with, the, with Christ's return for the saints or with the saints, with Christ's defeat of the Antichrist. Then you also have another word that's oftentimes used in these various settings, and that's apocalypsis, or revelation. And for that, you, you have it associated with the rapture in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, with the coming judgment in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 8. Then you also have the phrase appearing, or epiphania, and that's associated with the rapture and the Antichrist. So this, these words are always related to eschatology, to to the study of the last things, right? The last days. Um, it's much, it's, it seems more plain to read the text as relating to the same kind, the same event or the same time pre- period, not 
to just indiscriminately apply the word to, in one case, to the rapture. If all of those things are lined up together, then it makes sense because he, he's, he's using different words to talk about the same thing, but they all are related to the same event. If he's using them indiscriminately to describe different events, then you have a much more convoluted argument to make because you're, you're using language without really having any, any rules or basis for using them in the way you are. Does that make sense? So I think to make a very clear distinction between all of these events, you just can't do it from the language that you find in the Greek. Okay? It's, it's, uh, it's used in too many parallel settings. Secondly, the church does not escape the tribulation. Nowhere in Scripture does it, does it talk about the church missing out on something, escaping tribulation. The days will be shortened. It talks about the days being shortened for the sake of the elect, which implies that they are undergoing persecution. They're experiencing trial as well, but for their sake, God's going to shorten it. He's going to um, cut it short. That's found in Matthew chapter 24. The rapture is the same as the second coming. You have the description in Matthew 24, 31, and then 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. <clears throat> and actually, we can, we can turn to that one because it is the one that's most often used to refer to the rapture. And I'm going to talk about it as well in the, in the sermon briefly. But 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17 it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So the idea is God is, or Christ is seen in the sky, in the clouds, coming with the clouds, and he cry, makes a cry of command, a voice like an archangel, the sound of a trumpet, the dead are raised, and then those who are alive are transformed and caught up in the air with him. Well, that parallels a lot of the language you see in Matthew 24, verse 31. So rather than see him as separate events entirely, you have one describing the rapture, one describing his second coming. It's much more simple to understand them as the same event, different, different components of that same event, right? One is seeing him in the air. The other is seeing him come all the way down and, and bring judgment upon the people. So when the Lord returns, there will be a resurrection of all the dead believers that re precedes the transformation of all living believers. That's consistent with 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so here's the question. Why would Paul warn the Thessalonians that the Antichrist must appear before the second coming if he expected them to escape the tribulation anyways? And if he was saying, you know, don't worry, Christ hasn't come back yet because the Antichrist hasn't come. And we know that, when, that in order for Christ to return, the Antichrist must first come. He's warning them about the coming of the Antichrist. And if he, was, if he knew that they would escape it, that Christ would return before the Antichrist or even quasi-return and, and only catch them up in the air, that argument makes no sense. Right? All of a sudden, it's not a, very, it's, it's not a necessary point to make because they would have been gone anyways. So, but it's much more easier to see them as the same thing, the, the rapture and the second coming following the great tribulation. So they'll face the tribulation. After that, Christ will return. Thirdly, the rapture is not pre-tribulational, 
So this phrase that we're looking at in, in verse 16 of um, the Lord descending from heaven with the, with the cry and, and then bringing them up, uh, bringing believers up to him, being caught up to meet him in the air. That word meet is actually found in text describing a, um, a visitor, a dignitary coming to a city. Okay, um, it, there's a, it's a technical phrase that describes people within that city having a formal meeting, a formal gathering with this visiting dignitary to kind of provide a processional for them as they enter in. Okay, this would be, of course, only, you know, it'd be limited to like visiting kings, visiting dignitaries. Well, if that's the, the way you're used to hearing that word used in context, and, and you're reading it here of this meeting that's going to take place outside of the city the, the Jerus- of Jerusalem, and then ushering, the, the implication would be that you're meeting him in the sky and then bringing him in sort of like a pro- procession. Right? You're, you're bringing him back into the city with, uh, you're, you're going with the dignitary back into, um, back to earth. So that's, that's the imagery that's used here. You, the saints will meet with the Lord and then bring him back into the city. You see the same thing in Acts 28. Speaking of the brothers, Christians, who had been invited to stay. Um, let me see here. It says, there, there we found brothers who were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. So that He was visiting Rome, but there were some brothers that they were invited to stay with. Those brothers then heard about them and came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. Same word there, to meet us. So they, they go outside of Rome to meet him in this place, wherever the forum of Appius and the three taverns was, okay? It's outside of the city, though. They go out, meet him. On seeing them, Paul thanked them and uh, thanked God and took courage, and then we came to Rome, right? They go out, meet him, and they bring Paul in. They're, re- they're recognizing Paul as a as a dignitary, a visiting dignitary for them as saints. Uh, They're treating him as royalty, essentially, here in Acts 28. So Paul thanks them, takes courage, goes to be with them, and then he was allowed to stay with them um, uh, with a soldier who guarded him. So this is during house arrest for him. All right, Matthew 25, 6 says the same thing in in the parable of the, the ten virgins, where the where they're all waiting for the bridegroom to come. And when the bridegroom, when they see the bridegroom coming, what do they do? They, they cry out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. They're not just saying, hey, he's coming, we're waiting at the door. They go out to meet him. They go in and, find, and meet him outside of, as he's coming in so that they all can travel in with him. But of course, the foolish virgins had run out of oil, so they couldn't go out to meet him. And, and, and then when they come back, they're locked out. They're per, you know, prevented from entering into the marriage uh, feast. So that's how the, that word is used. It is a technical term, and it means to meet a dignitary outside of the city and then to, bring, to come in with them. It may have more broad usage than that as well, but in this context, it makes so much sense to use it in that way, to understand them as meeting him and then proceeding or coming down with him, not meeting him in the air and then turning around and going back into heaven for seven years 
and then at Christ's return coming down with him. That would be a misuse of the, of the language. Okay? Let's go to the fourth one. Christ's second coming is with and for his people. It's described that way in First in Thessalonians. It describes him as coming with the saints, he, and, or the, the saints come with Christ, but he also comes for them. So there are some that are still on earth living, and then there are some coming with him from heaven. These are the saints that have already gone to, to heaven that will be coming back with him when he returns. Uh, the, you can see this idea in the Belgic Confession. You also see it in the Heidelberg Catechism. What comfort does the resurrection of the body afford thee? That not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body raised by the power of Christ shall again be united with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. So when, when we describe the second coming of Christ, we're also seeing the resurrection taking place. Right? Our souls are coming with Christ, but then as we come down, our bodies are, we're meeting our bodies and, and our resurrected bodies and be entering into that final glorified state. Okay? That's, that's a consistent reading of all of these texts. Fifth, believers can be spared the punishment of God's wrath as it is poured out upon the world while still in the world. One of the arguments dispensationalists oftentimes point to is they say, well, believers are supposed to be spared. They're not supposed to endure the wrath of God. They've been protected from that. They've been, that wrath has been poured out upon Christ. And so if the, if the tribulation is described as the wrath of God being poured out upon the world, how can we be a part of it? Well, it's very simple. The same thing happened to the pl in the plagues, right, in Egypt. What happened to Israel? They were preserved from those same plagues that were destroying Egypt. People of God were preserved and protected and then brought out from that. Same thing will happen in, in the end times. We will be protected and preserved. Not, not that we won't have any persecution. We'll experience persecution and trials, and, and it'll be difficult, but there will be um, a protection or a pre preservation of our souls by God, and we will not be enduring the unmitigated wrath of God in that sense. Does that make sense? So when it speaks of the church being, um, this, the church will be spared the wrath of God, you can actually, I think um, it'll say something like that in Revelation 9, verses, 9 verse 4. Uh, yeah, where the um, the fifth angel blows the trumpet and they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. There's a separation there between unbelievers and believers. Um, those who had the seal and those who don't have the seal. So the plagues, some of the plagues at least, are, are only poured out upon those who do not have the seal. Um, and yet, Matthew 24, 9 does talk about tribulation that we'll experience as believers, right? It's a, in fact, Revelation is preparing the church for tribulation, preparing the church for trials and persecution, but it's not, it's not coming as a result of the plagues of God, right? It's coming as a result of living in a fallen world and, and having enemies. All right, so deliverance from tribulation will occur at Christ's return. And that's, that's explained in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, 
verses 6 through 8. Sixth, I know I'm moving fast here, but sixth is Christ's return is visible. It's not secret. It's never described as being a secret return. Uh, what we will look at in the sermon is Revelation 1-7, which is, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So this is why we're talking a little bit about the rapture and, and um, in the sermon today, because that passage there is very similar to what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's coming with the clouds, and but here every eye will see him. Well, what's happening in in First Thessalonians, it's talking about the, the, the cry of command, the sound of a trumpet. It doesn't talk about anyone not being able, like those being quiet or silent. Those are sounds that are loud. They're meant to be heard by everyone. So you have in Revelation 1-7, everyone's seen, every eye seen Christ. Well, if you combine that with First Thessalonians 4, it makes sense that you would also hear him in his coming. Right? So it's a visible display. It's a, it's a very public return. It's not secret. Just as Christ's first coming was visible, so will his return be. You can get, that's the logic of Titus chapter 2, 11 through 13. And just as Christ's ascension was visible, so will his return be. Right? He ascended into the sky and the disciples watched him go up. And then they stood there thinking, what are we to do now? And the angels said, he's going to come back in the same way that he left. So Get about the work that he's given you. He's given you a task to do, right? So same thing. There's, there's a visible return just like his visible ascension. Sec, uh, seventh, and then we're almost done. We have seven and eight. Seventh, there is no indication that salvation is possible after Christ's return, which dispensationalists have to argue that there is, right? Christ returns, sets up the millennial reign, during the millennial reign, there's still some rebellion. There will be some conversions taking place during that time. Uh, there's conversions during the tribulation. So if you have the return, even a partial return of Christ before the tribulation, then you have a whole lot of people being converted during that seven-year tribulation. So there's no indication in Scripture of, of that ever being possible. There's only two resurrections mentioned. 1 Corinthians 15.23 talks about the resurrection of Christ. And then it talks about the resurrection, uh, a, a, another resurrection, right? Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Uh, this verse doesn't allow for future resurrections, right? Resurrection of believers or resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of believers at his rapture, another resurrection of believers after the tribulation, another resurrection of believers after the millennial reign. And that's what it requires to have a dispensational view. Um, Christ returns with all of his saints. When it says he, he's coming back with the saints, it's not saying um, only some of them, right? It's, it's all the saints who have died and gone to heaven that are going to come back with him. Um, so there's not this indication that there's there's future saints waiting down the road um, even the passage on the rapture that we looked at leaves no room for future resurrections after the millennium any delay of the lord's return as seen um, is seen as an opportunity for repentance you have that from second peter this idea that that 
God is not slow in keeping his promises. He's not slow in, in fulfilling the promises he's made. But if he's delayed, it's because he's giving an opportunity to repent. If, if that, I mean, that only makes sense if there's no opportunity to repent after he returns. If you, if you want to argue, well, he'll return and then there'll be more opportunities, then that's never found in Scripture. <clears throat> so those who are prepared, who aren't prepared when Christ comes, will be like those foolish virgins who are locked out. Right? Doesn't say, well, hold on, let's just have this marriage feast for seven years and then we'll, we'll let you in. We'll unlock the door at that point. Um, that doesn't happen. The parable is that only those who are wise, who were prepared for his coming, enjoy that marriage feast. Lastly, and for this I'll have you turn there, Revelation chapter 20, because we're going to stay here now. Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6 does not fit a dispensational premillennial view. So here there is no mention of living believers being transformed in this passage. Dispensationalists want to argue that Jesus... um, comes back, he, he raptures the church, and then those who are still alive will be transformed and enter, or be caught up with him, um, and then the, the Jews will be converted and enter into the tribulation, and they'll be kind of the, the remnant that's left on earth. Um, there's no explanation of that in this, in this text. There's no idea of anyone alive being transformed. This passage is is really only talking about those in heaven. That's why it's using the language of thrones. Remember, we talked about that, the idea that thrones, anytime you read in in Revelation, which is a lot, it's a heavenly throne. It's a heavenly picture that's being described. So there's no mention of living believers being transformed in this passage, and dispensationalists like Charles Ryrie and Dwight Pentecost, they, they read that into the text. Since, there are the, since these are the only ones actually reigning on earth during the millennial reign, according to their view, it seems like a major problem that John only speaks of the dead who have been raised in their glorified bodies. Right? If they're arguing that this is describing saints entering into a period of the millennium, a thousand-year reign, and it's only those who were still alive at the end of the tribulation, then it's, then it's really not, it's inconceivable that he wouldn't express that. He would only talk about those who had died, the souls who had come back, to, who had come to life. Um, In addition, if the millennial reign is seen as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises to Israel, why isn't there any mention of Israel in this text? They would see the millennial reign as fulfilling all of the Old Testament promises that have been made to Israel, and they keep that distinction all the way up to the millennial, all the way up through the millennial reign. But there's no mention here of Israel. It's just talking about those who belong to God. So that would include Gentiles. I think it's problematic that the only passage that deals with the millennial reign 
cannot be read in a consistent, literal way, which is one of the distinctions of dispensational premillennialism. Okay? Now, let's look at Revelation 21 through 6, and I'm going to try to explain it as best I can with my view. It's not my, I've adopted this view. <laughs> so in the first sermon, I tried to show the different ways of reading Revelation. You have the preterists, the futurists, the historicists, and idealist positions. The goal is to understand that Revelation needed to be read by the original audience, understood by the original audience, but it also needed to be, make sense and, and have application throughout the church age, throughout this present age. We need to be able to apply and understand the text for ourselves. The following few weeks, we spent time looking at the structure of Revelation and the cyclical order that's taking place throughout the book, where you have the same event being described in cycles, cycling back around to it. That's critical to understand this passage, because if you simply understand it as a chrono chronological timeline, you know, what happens in the first chapter uh, happens before everything that happens at the end, or, and, and you're working your way through on a chronological timeline, then you'll read about the um, you'll read about the return of Christ in in chapter twenty. Sorry, you'll let's see here. Yeah, if we see a chronological order, then we'll naturally read about the return of Christ in nineteen verses eleven through sixteen, and then you'll see it talking about the millennial reign that follows. And you'll say, of course, if the return of Christ is described in chapter nineteen then the return of Christ or the millennial reign must follow his return. But if we see cyclical order and we can acknowledge that that's how revelation is laid out, then it's very easy to see these events as recapitulating or recapping what's already been described so that the millennial reign can take place throughout the first and second coming of Christ. We also see a depiction of Satan's defeat associated with Christ's first coming in chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Um, the order in Revelation 20 begins with the millennial reign, verses 4 through 6, followed by the final judgment, verses 11 through 15. So the final judgment is associated with the second coming throughout the New Testament. And this would place the millennial reign before the second coming. Again, if you have the final judgment described just after the millennial reign, and you have the, that judgment take also associated with his coming throughout Scripture, then, then it's understandable to see the final judgment as taking place um, at the second coming of Christ before the millennial reign. If the expected form of communication is symbolism in apocalyptic literature, then we should assume that the thousand years of Revelation 20 will be figurative. It describes an indefinite but lengthy period of time. Okay, so let's look at the first section, verses 1 through 3, which describes the binding of Satan. I know some, some of you, that's been a confusing thing to understand. How can Satan be bound when it seems like there's so much evil? But what, it's be, what is being described in this is the binding of Satan for a particular purpose. The verse says, literally, that he's bound from deceiving it's in verse 3. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So Satan is essentially in, a bottom, in the bottomless pit 
which is not the lake of fire, because that's described in verse 10 as him, him being cast into the lake of fire at his defeat. So this bottomless pit is a prior conquering that he's experienced. While in the pit, he's prevented from deceiving the nations as he had done under the old covenant. This is what makes fulfilling of the Great Commission possible. Right? If he's not bound, then, then he'll continue to deceive the nations and prevent the church from, from, um, from growing into the world. This is taught in Scripture in Matthew 12, verse 29, where we read, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. This is Jesus describing how he can cast out demons. And he's saying, in order to do that, I need to bind the strong man. Satan has to be bound in order for Jesus to have any authority over demons. Right? He's, he can't be working with him as the Pharisees and scribes were trying to attack him as doing. Right? They were saying, oh, he's, he's got the power to cast out demons because he is the prince of demons. Um, that's not the case. He's saying I have to, he has to be opposed to the strong man. He has to be opposed to Satan. So the angel seized the dragon and bound him in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. Matthew uses that same language, binding. He has to bind the strong man. In the same, the same exact word that is used in Revelation 22 of, the, of Satan being bound. What did Jesus do at the beginning of his ministry? Immediately following he, his baptism, he defeats Satan. Right? He goes into the wilderness and he is deceived or he is tempted by Satan and he defeats him. He conquers him. And, and that's the beginning of his ministry to where now he's immediately casting out demons. He's working miracles. He's... He's going about proclaiming the kingdom of God. And, and there's no ability for Satan to continue to deceive the nations. That binding had already happened at the beginning of his first coming. Okay, or you could say at the beginning of his ministry. You have it again in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Jesus told his disciples who experienced authority over demons that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When this occurred, it, it seems to, to be consistent that it would have occurred during his ministry. Satan was already being prevented and bound from interfering from the advance of the kingdom. Um, the fact that Jesus can now cast out demons is evidence that the kingdom of God has come which means that we are now in this age of gospel proclamation from the beginning of Christ's ministry. Again, in John ch chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It's a description of, clearly of Satan being cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. A description of the cross. So he's saying Satan will be cast out I'll be lifted up on the cross and draw all people to my... He's, he's talking about the, the, the gospel bringing in every nation. Again, that same language of through or being cast out, the angel threw Satan into the pit. In Revelation 20, verse 3, John used that same root here to describe Satan being cast out, which leads to Jesus drawing all men to himself while he's lifted up on the cross. So Satan's defeat 
plus the power of the cross leads to worldwide gospel proclamation. It began at the start of Christ's ministry. It's continuing even today, and it will continue until his return. Now, verses, so that's the binding of Satan. Any questions about that? We've got about 10 minutes, and I've only got to cover the millennial reign in that. Um, so if you have questions about the binding of Satan still, now it's time to ask. Ma'am? Yeah, so the argument isn't that no one will be deceived, but it's that hey, there will be a representative from every tribe, tribe, tongue, and nation, right? As as we see their description in Revelation nine, I believe, maybe seven. But it's in that in that middle section of Revelation you have a description of the of the church gathered together and worshiping God. It's, it's seven. And it's every nation is represented. So it doesn't mean that there will be... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's the, the main point is that, that the kingdom of God is expanding beyond Israel. Any other questions on that? All right. So the millennial reign, you have in the first three verses a description of Satan being bound for a thousand years. In verses four through six, you have this reign that takes place for a thousand years. The implication would be that that thousand years is the same time period. Most people don't argue with that. Um, the only ones that would have an issue would probably be post-millennialists because they see the binding of Satan as already happening, but not the reign necessarily. And if you do that, now you're, you're having an issue with, I mean, it, it, it's a problem because the, the same exact phrase is used in both sections. So it would make much more sense if it's talking about the same time period. During the same thousand-year reign that Satan is bound, from deceiving the nations on earth. The saints are reigning with Christ in heaven. So while Satan is bound, saints are reigning. The period covers the present age between the first and second coming. Um, I've already briefly hinted at this, but the thrones are just, there are, uh, that word throne appears in Revelation 47 times. And only three times is it not a heavenly throne. And in those three times, it's because it's a throne of Satan. It's talking about, it's talking about judgment being poured out upon Satan's throne, wherever that would be. But it wouldn't, certainly wouldn't be in the presence of God. It wouldn't be in heaven. So you have 47 word, times, times that word is used, and every time it's either heaven or a reference to Satan. Never an earthly reign in any way. Revelation contains no references to an earthly throne. This is a problem, really, I think, for everyone except all millennialists. Because if you want to say that this is an earthly reign, as post-millennialists do, as, dis- as pre, um, 
historic premillennialists or as dispensational premillennialists, then you have to say that John is using it in a very unique way in this passage. Without, without really explanation. The fact that John also sees the souls of those who had been beheaded would indicate that he's seen a picture of heaven. And he's talking about the souls that he has seen. So he's looking into heaven. The question is, who is seated on these thrones? Okay, when I saw the thrones, we can picture them in heaven. Seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast. So I see two groups here. One is believers who have died and then been given authority to reign with Christ. Um, This is the promise that we'll get in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Those who conquer, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Just as Christ conquered and ascended into heaven and and, and has all authority, we too will sit with Christ enthroned, right? And, and reigning with him. That's the promise that's given to them. Secondly, you have a group defined as those who've been martyred, the souls of those who've been beheaded. Um, again, there's a description of this group in several places in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Again, very clearly, this is those who have been martyred are in a special category in heaven. Revelation 13, 15 says, And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So those who have been beheaded or those who have been slain by the beast, those who have been persecuted and martyred for their faith. That's who is being described here as also sitting on the thrones. So John has in mind all believers who have died, but especially those who were martyred as coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. That's the description from verses four through six. Again, we've talked about this, but, and, and this is the, where it can get a little confusing, but the kind of resurrection they experience is not identical. It's not a physical resurrection like Christ experienced. The idea that they're coming to life with him to live with Christ is a spiritual resurrection. Right? Although this term is often used to refer to physical resurrection, it doesn't require us to read it that way. Those who reign with Christ experience the first resurrection, meaning they're reigning with him in heaven. And this resurrection seems to be different than the resurrection of the dead who are judged later on in chapter 20, verses 11 through 13. So premillennials see the first resurrection as referring to believers and then they assume that there's a second resurrection for unbelievers, right? But that doesn't talk about a second resurrection. My argument is that the first resurrection is referring to believers who, have been, who are in heaven, living and reigning with Christ apart from their bodies, and that the implied second resurrection is the general resurrection that all believers will be united again with their bodies, their glorified bodies that have been raised, Okay. 
the premillennialists argue again that you have the first resurrection of believers in verses in four through six here of chapter 20, and then you have a second resurrection of unbelievers referred to in, in um, the judgment passage of 11 through 13 at the judgment of the great white throne. But we've seen this several times in John 5, 28 and 29. Very clearly, there's a general resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. It happens at the same time. It's not a separate event. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Everyone who is dead will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's, there's, no, there's no room for a, a major gap between these two resurrections. There's no indication that the dead in 11 through 13, the judgment that takes place there in, in Revelation 20, there's no indication that the dead there described are only unbelievers. Amillennialists see this later resurrection as a general resurrection that includes everyone who had died. Therefore, the earlier resurrection in Revelation 21 through 4 must be something other than physical. Uh, they have in, we're, we're, we're on the last page. So they, they have entered into a joyous intermediate state with their, uh, where their souls are alive and reigning with Christ. That would be consistent with Philippians 1.23 as well as 2 Corinthians 5.8. Right? You have Paul looking forward to it, saying, I would rather depart and be with Christ because it's far better than remaining in this body. Right? But even then, there's also a, a looking forward to, a, a longing to be further clothed in the glorified body. Right? But this intermediate state is glorious. It's a joyous state. It's something we look forward to. The millennial reign is now, but it's heavenly. Verses four through six say nothing about an earthly reign. The imagery is consistent with John's heavenly visions, and the natural reading of the passage is to see this as a heavenly millennial reign. Jesus uses similar logic with the Sadducees who denied the resurrection of the body. In Exodus, uh, Jesus quotes Exodus 3.6 in order to prove that the patriarchs in some sense are still alive. He said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Right? So he's talking about that same idea here, that they are alive with God. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Um, in Revela uh, this is in Luke chapter 20. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. So Jesus, again, speaking to the Sadducees, who don't believe in anything outside of the Pentateuch. They only accept Moses. So he's going to use an argument from Moses to defend the idea of resurrection, which the Sadducees denied, because they said Moses never talks about it. Moses never talks about resurrection, so we deny any idea of a future resurrection life, uh, a life after death. So Jesus says this, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. So again, not only does Jesus prove the resurrection from the Pentateuch, from the first five books attributed to Moses, um, which is the only portion of Scripture Sadducees would have accepted, 
but he also proved the life, the use of this word life in Greek as a reference to the souls of those in an intermediate state, those who have already died but are alive. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 5, also speaks about the rest of the dead who did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This would just be a reference to those who had unbelievers who had died who will receive the exact opposite of believers. Instead of going to be with Christ and living with him, they wait until their final judgment. They're cast into this place that's not quite the lake of fire, but it is a place of, uh, we believe, of, of, of torment. All right, so this is all true during the entire present age. This sentence is a parenthetical statement. Um, and look again at verse, uh, chapter 20, verses 5 through 6. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Well, the first sentence there, verse 5, is a parenthesis because the first resurrection is not a reference to the dead who do not come back to life, that would make no sense, right? And if you read on to verse six, it says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So we know the first resurrection is not a reference to the dead who do not come back, to, who do not reign with Christ, but the first resurrection is a description of believers who are reigning with Christ, who are blessed to share in that reign, all right? So the implication is that they all will also enjoy a second bodily resurrection upon Christ's return. And that is it. So after the blessing, John describes the situation of the deceased unbelievers as being under the power of the second death. And that's essentially what's awaiting those who have died now. You have the first death as being their physical death of unbelievers, and then the second death is what awaits them. Instead of a, a second resurrection, they experience a second death. Got it? Clear? Sorry, uh, this has been a... I know, I know you had to have your thinking caps on for, for a long time here, all six weeks, but um, hopefully it will continue to make more sense as we work our way through Revelation and this has given you some kind of foundation so that when we get there, a year from now, to Revelation 20 again, it'll, it'll, um, it'll all come together. Let me close this in prayer because we only got about 12 minutes before service begins. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even the challenging passages, and this is one of the most difficult passages because of how much debate is surrounding it. Help us to continue to be encouraged by what is described here, that we truly can look forward to reigning with you in heaven um, as soon as we die. And that we also have something to look forward to uh, in, in returning with you, with Christ, um, and, and living with him in the new heavens and new earth. So we, we pray that as we make our way through Revelation, as we continue to think about these things, that it would give us a greater hope and a greater sense of encouragement in what Christ has accomplished for us. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.